Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hi, everybody. Well, the story here is that Abraham and Sarah have been promised a son, and it's 10 years later, and uh, she's barren still, and... She starts to think, well, perhaps the best way for this child to be born is for my husband to sleep with the, the servant girl, and uh, that way the baby that's born there will be the, the fulfillment of God's promise. And as you read in the chapter, it, it didn't go well. And we, we see here a, a story of chaos coming into a household and it seems as though there's a certain phrase in it that's telling Uh, it's got Abram listening to the voice of his wife and then you go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 and the very same phrase is used by God when he speaks to Adam 
at the point of the fall of the human race, that the, the point at which we as humankind uh, failed in our destiny, stepped away from God, the way that God speaks to Adam, the husband in that situation, is because you have listened to the voice of your wife. It's the same phrase popping up in Genesis twice. And we ought to think, why, why is that phrase coming through so clearly? Is there something going on here? And, and it would perhaps lead us to even question, is, is the Bible kind of anti-women? Is, is there something anti-wives going on here that husbands, generally speaking, should not listen to their wives? Well, we can be clear from the start that that is definitely not what the Bible teaches. There are multiple ways to demonstrate that. There are husbands who do very well to listen to their wives in the Bible. There are husbands who do very stupidly when they don't listen to their wives in the Bible. And there are countless other ways I could demonstrate the fact that the Bible does not mean by this that the wife is not to be listened to per se. What is being said then? What's going on? Well, in this situation, both here with Abram and Sarai and also with Adam and Eve, you have a situation where a very clear and explicit word has come from God and the man does not fulfil it. The man fails in it because instead of listening to the voice of God, he listens instead to his wife. It's because he replaces God's voice with the, the voice of somebody else. That's the very simple thing that scripture seems to be cautioning here. And it is a caution because it's a constant temptation, a constant issue, a constant battle for us in our ordinary lives when it comes to fulfilling the destiny, the reason that you were put on planet Earth, that the purpose and destiny of your life there will be rival destinies, there will be shadow destinies, there will be Ishmaels that can happen, troubles that you can invite in instead of your destiny when you don't listen to the voice of God but instead yield to rival voices. And what I notice in this book is that the rival voices will often be the ones that we most cherish, the ones that we would ordinarily be most right to listen to. Because we have an enemy who is subtle. We have a real enemy, a real hateful, evil enemy who opposes our destiny and wants to bring us off course. And he's far too cunning to do it through a direct confrontation. He's far wiser than that. He knows how to reach us. He reaches us through our relationships, often the ones we cherish the most, even our marriages. So the, the calling on us, husbands, wives, individuals who aren't married, children, whoever, is to watchfully care about the truth, the voice, the word, the things to which the Lord has called us and cherish those things to the point where we would even allow relationships to come second. And ultimately, that's always for the best of the relationship anyway, right? I remember... a. a a great Bible teacher who died just a few years ago who, who, who said near the end of his life, he said, I look at the, the kind of Christian world, the church world, and he said, this is the biggest problem I see. The biggest weakness in the contemporary church, the modern church, is that we value relationships above truth. 
We value relationships above truth. Now, that doesn't mean that these two things should vie against each other. Relationships and truth are not meant to be polarised. Relationships are healthy because they're built on truth. And truth doesn't actually even take root and flourish. Truth doesn't even mean much outside of relationships. Truth is meant to be expressed and start to take flesh and live through our relationships. So truth and relationships are meant to go together, but there is a way in which that happens. There is a way in which that takes place, and it involves order and obedience. It involves people saying, okay, in this situation, even if it causes disruption, even if I cause disappointment, even if I annoy people, I will put God's word first. I will have to. It will cause me pain because I'll be hurt by the people who I will hurt. But I will put God's word first. And some of you know from experience how when you've taken that difficult and dangerous step, it's felt often like, like you're getting into the, the cold seawater. It feels horribly uncomfortable, but suddenly you start to, well, maybe not suddenly, eventually you start to realise it was, it was actually the right move. It starts to feel comfortable. You start to realise, no, this is providing the order, the strength that everyone else will do better because of. Jesus had this very thing happen to him. We talked about this even last week. One of his best friends came to him and tried to dissuade him from his destiny. And Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. He said that to his closest friend, seemingly, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He was so clear, so firm and stridently clear. And that's a huge thing to emphasize. Yeah, even on Father's Day, especially on Father's Day. Because Christian fathers, fathers who love Jesus, need to learn often to stand in the confidence and the dignity of their calling. When it starts to be time to come back to church in person and your kids don't want to go to church because they love the idea of just watching it on telly. It so fits with everything else that they do these days. Everything is on a screen. And so you have this moment where you've got to think, okay, how do I lead? Do I lead or do I yield? And it's just one example amongst tens of thousands that we face in ordinary life where it's like, who, who leads in this situation? Sometimes fathers, I find this, you know, I find it from my dad, my kids find it from me. I pity the kids whose dads are preachers. Just feel sorry for them because they know, they know what to expect from them. When I get the sense that one of my, my sons wants to start taking the lead in the home, I've occasionally had to say the kind of... Sure, you can take lead in the home. Uh, get a job, get married, have kids. You can take a lead in the home. At this moment in time in your life, the thing you're learning is to follow the lead in the home, is to follow the lead that God's put here. And in this situation, what we've got is a guy who's frankly abdicating. He's saying, well, is that, is that what you want? Okay, yeah, okay, I'll sleep with the maidservant. I mean, he gets to sleep around as well. The whole thing stinks. This is, this is Abram not being Father Abraham. We don't celebrate this version of Abraham, do we? But we're seeing the reality of a flawed man and we're being warned by this very story how, how easy it is, even for the best, to drift into foolish decisions. And I want us to look at this carefully. I want us to see the nature of this crazy decision that Sarai and Abram invite into their home. The, fir the first thing I want us to notice about it is how wrong-headed it is. And then we'll look 
at how flimsy it is and then we'll look at how hard-hearted it is. But really quickly, how is it wrong-headed? What I mean by that this is a wrong-headed decision, I mean it starts on the wrong foundation. It, it, it's, it's wrong from the beginning because it's based on this is what everybody does. And, and by and large, culturally speaking, that would have been approved of. You, you can't have children, you have children with the slave girl. That's, that's, that's how we do. And ordinarily, perhaps people in the, in the culture of the time would have smiled on this. Abram, obviously, that's the move you make. Because that's how we generally operate, right? We look sideways. We, we think, well, that's what they're doing. And that's what she's doing. That's what he's doing. I think, presumably, this is the thing we're all doing now. And some of us might think, no, that's not how I live. I'm a person of principle. You know, I, I don't follow the crowd. I don't drift. I... You do. We, we all do to some, I mean, we have to. It's part of the way we're wired. We wouldn't, you know, that's how we learn languages. It's how, we do stuff by assimilating. We're socialised into a culture. We learn, kids do it. We all do that. The issue is you can't do that always <laughs> because there'll be ways in which you'll be brought into conflict with God's instruction when you do that. God will speak and the culture will speak. And sometimes the culture will not speak the same way that God speaks. How do we respond? How do we handle that tension? Some of us face it painfully. Some of you are facing that at work. Some of you are facing that in your family. Some of you are facing that in all kinds of 24-7 ways. And churches face that. I, I, I notice increasingly churches make decisions seemingly based on what are the other churches doing. Preachers do this. People like me. What are they preaching? What are they saying? What's acceptable? What's allowed to say? And we're in trouble when we do that. Because this is what we preach, right? This is how we build, right? And that, you'll be surprised how much freedom that gives you. You'll be surprised how liberating that is because the Bible's way freer than we think about what's, what's okay. Churches can do that and this and the other. There's all kinds of ways that that liberates us. But there are times when it means it puts us in friction with the ordinary drift. And we have to... Learn to stand in the confidence of what God has said, even against the clamour, even against the backlash, even against the pushback, and just say, no, we're going to stick with what God says. We're going to stick with how we understand his revelation in this book. We're going to just do that because we treasure a good conscience above the convenience of consensus. We really, really want that better. We want that more. We think it's better. We think it's healthier. We think it's safer. We think it's better for the long run. And often people will ask us as a church, why do you do that? Why do you believe that? Why do you hold that line? And we kind of get used to having to say, because we think it's biblical. And it's very tempting to just go, with, well, what, what is everyone saying now? And you can't do that. And I can't. We can't. We mustn't. Otherwise, we drift away from the destiny God has for us. It's a wrong-headed decision. It's also a flimsy decision. Look at the way Sarah reasons in verse 2. She's, she's kind of trying to convince herself about it, it seems to me. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. <laughs> it's kind of strange logic, isn't it? You know, maybe you're having a, a child through someone else and it will be my child. The word maybe is very telling, right? It may be. She, she has the sound of someone who's trying to convince herself. She's, she doesn't really believe this. 
she's, she's hanging on to a tenuous, kind of irrational argument, but she's hanging on anyway, sort of white knuckle, hanging on. Maybe! As, as a pastor, you know, speaking, I've, for many years, been a pastor now. I get to say that, I'm older. And I've been in so many conversation situations where I've questioned someone's decision and the foundations and the basis for their decision, the reasons behind it. Because I've, I've, I just, how can you be doing something so obviously, you, you know this isn't the right thing to do. And some, sometimes when you press, the kind of response you get in itself is, it, it sounds like this. It's this kind of, well, maybe, it, it might be, maybe, 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 it will work. It's just sort of so, yeah, well, I, 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 you know, and you're kind of trying to ask, you know, gently, politely. You don't have to do the get behind me, Satan. You can do it, you know, with gentleness. It's good to do that. Why, why are you getting into that romantic relationship with that person that doesn't love Jesus? Why, why are you doing that? Oh, I know you always say that we should, but maybe, I mean, maybe it works out. And I, yeah, there was a, maybe I just, a Facebook and uh, YouTube and uh, Ariana Grande and I just, oh, you shut up! <laughs> and you kind of, what? Did you just say anything? It's just kind of, yeah, me, 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 me. You, can we just come back to what we know instead of making weird stuff up? Like maybe it will be my baby. The whole thing, it won't. It's going to be her baby. And God promised you a baby. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Friends, be honest with yourselves. When you find yourself drifting into a decision, and I use those words carefully, drifting into a decision, that you know, you know it's not right. You know it isn't. But you're drifting into it. And you, you quiz yourself. Or maybe your friends are kind enough to quiz you. They do the awkward thing, which Abram should have done. And he didn't, because he was sitting with his remote control and his can of lager and his whatever, his PlayStation, just whatever Abram was doing. Be real. Be honest. These, these are not small things. This is what God wants. This is your destiny. This is the, the reason he put you on the planet and you're fiddling with it because of something flimsy. And we do that as a culture. We fiddle with family. We fiddle with sexuality. We fiddle with divorce laws since the 60s and been surprised when the results aren't very good. And society seems to crumble when you get whole streets where there's about one dad in the house because we've disintegrated the things that are most important to keep society together. And the one thing you can't do is blame that. The one thing you can't raise is that subject. We'll deal with any subject of injustice except the disintegration of the family, because you don't get to touch that. You don't get to go near that issue. And neither does Hagar. Sarah, have you noticed? I mean, this is the third thing. She's hard-hearted about it. It's, it's really striking she's invited the chaos into the situation. Abram has totally allowed it, abdicated. And her response, when she, when she has to face the issue, look what's going on in verse 4, that, that Hagar starts to scorn her, her mistress. She starts to be rude. 
And so it's kind of like the table stands. Sarah is like, what have I done? This woman, is gonna, she thinks she's now the, the, the queen of the home. She's going to be the mother of Israel, right? This woman's taken everything from me. Yes, yeah, Sarah, you invited her in to do that. How does Sarah respond? With a soft heart? With the fear of God? Does she come repentant? Does she think, oh man, what have I done? Why did I, what was I thinking? No. No, how, how does she respond? She responds with anger towards her husband. May the wrong done to me be on you. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's furious, but she takes it out on her husband. She's not to blame. No, I'm, I'm not. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I just, you know, it's his fault. See, this is all going back to Genesis 3. This is all going back to the first couple, Adam and Eve. It was the woman you gave me, it was the serpent. No, it, it was you. It was me. It was, it, was, it, was, it was the person who is resisting any sense of complicity. We defend ourselves in terror and shame. We don't have the right fear. What we need, friends, is the fear of God. We need to see God and we need to see our shortcomings and we need to face it with reality. We need to desperately, this is the one thing she doesn't do. She is hard-hearted. She defends herself because, and this is the thing, notice what's been going on here. What is, what is in Sarah's heart? What's driving this hard-heartedness? I think she's really, really disappointed. I think she's in a lot of pain. Ten years of being told you're going to have a child. Ten years in her barrenness, you're going to have a child. And every month that goes by, it's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Every, every, every time she lifts her heart in hope, it almost feels cruel. And to go through that for so long, the Bible says, as Toby reminded us last week, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. This lady's heart is sick. She's bitter. She's drinking on bitterness, it seems, perpetually. And we'll do that, right? We'll do that when we face situations where we're deprived of things, where things are taken from us, where we're disappointed by circumstances, where, where the promises of God don't measure up to our experience of life. How do you handle that? Where the things that God seems to promise, the blessings, the joy, the peace, the healing, the, the sense of his presence, all the things that we, we read of, the things he promises to us, the things we learn to expect and hope for, they don't seem to come. We go through seasons, maybe long seasons, maybe 10 years, where it's oh man, I know he says it, but it's been years. It's been years. I just, I quit. I just, I just quit. no small thing is it handling the, the weird misalignment between the promises of God and our experience we need to learn we need to learn <laughs> to trust in his character to trust in his goodness to trust with gratitude in his faithfulness and his ability to keep his word even in times of delay to be saying no I know I trust him I trust him 
I know he's good for his word. And that's what she has needed to do. And Abram should have helped her with it, I guess. He should have been alongside her. It seems that at this point in the story, Abram has, has allowed the fact that he's got faith to be all that he needs. Well, as long as I've got faith, it doesn't matter if my wife doesn't. No. Husbands and dads need to think more broadly. Am I sharing my faith with my wife? Am I sharing my, am I building a household of faith? Are we expecting the promise? Are we praying? Are we expecting? Are we hoping together? Are we together hoping? He allowed her to drift into hopelessness and despair. What's the solution? Well, it's amazing to me how this story is framed because you really see three humans <laughs> behaving like humans. You see Abram, you see Sarah, you even see Hagar. I mean, Hagar is genuinely a victim, but she's also complicit. Her, her behaviour doesn't shine in this story. But then you see God. And what a God he is. Look at the way he handles this. Look at the way he steps in to redeem. Look at the way he shows kindness and mercy to this woman, Hagar. This used up, rejected, cruelly treated woman. How does he deal with her? He goes to her. He meets with her. It's that old phrase, it's the, it's the angel of the Lord. Have you noticed as we've gone through Genesis how he keeps showing up, the angel of the Lord. And even the way she talks about him, you're the God of seeing. It's, it's interesting, she's, kinda, she's got this kind of thing about how God sees and I see. She said, the Lord saw me, the Lord saw me. And then it's, 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 it's her very words. She said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Could it be that? I've seen the Lord. And you know from the, the other bits of the Bible, you can't see the Lord. No one can look on the Lord and live. No one has seen God, says John chapter 1. But God, the only begotten, who was in the beginning, he has made him known. How do we get to see God? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus shows up. That's how I got one. I can't understand that verse any other way, right? It's just logical. It's got to be Jesus. Jesus shows up to a woman at a well. Reminds me of another story. A used, sexually used woman. Jesus reaches out. Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? Jesus cares for her. Jesus notices her. Start with that. Start that. If you're like Sarah, if you're in a place of tired hopelessness start with this God sees you he sees these last 10 years did you know that I tell you listen look at me he sees you when no one else does he sees you and he makes promises, even to Hagar, promises about her child, about her future, promises about his future. He gets involved. And what a God to get involved. What a saviour he is. Do you, do you notice the mess of this family? Don't you think, well, this family's a total flop. This family's a disaster zone. This family's chaos. You might think that my family can't be chaos because I'm a preacher and how wrong you would be. I often have days where I think, what a bad dad, what a mess. And ranging from my experiences, which are pr pretty trivial, through to all manner of painful family experiences, we often th sort of throw up our hands in despair. 
what kind of God would be interested in my family? What kind of God would want to help and sort of heal and forgive and bring strength and grace and hope to this kind of family? What kind of God could or would begin to do that? And we have this very God here. Do you remember that when Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, describes the family tree of Jesus the Messiah, the family that Jesus was to be born into, he makes a point of highlighting stories of absolute chaos. Stories of adultery and prostitution, stuff that you think, how, how would, this is surely the kind of family that the Son of God would not be born into. And we've got him all wrong then, because it's the very family he chooses. He comes into the most messed up, the most apparently hopeless situations, and doesn't just tolerate them. He doesn't even just forgive them, but restores them and dignifies them. Do you know that about your family? Jesus looks on it with huge hope. Jesus looks on your life with hope. You need to welcome him in because he is the only one that has come into the mess, taken the mess upon himself on the cross, been crucified for it. It's been buried in the tomb with him and it will never come out. It's gone forever. The curse, the sin, the mess, the bad decisions, the foolishness, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, all gone. Jesus is able to raise new life up, raise hope up and give you a future even as a family. Let's pray together. Father, we take your word seriously today and we thank you that because of that we have hope. We don't have hope because we're just going to be optimists, put on a brave face and pretend. We want to face the reality of the mess of our lives and the sins we've committed and the follies we've indulged in. But we thank you that the truth is also God is a saviour who rescues and redeems and restores. And we pray for every single family situation involved in watching this today. I pray for faith and hope to rise in people's hearts. I pray for forgiveness of sins. I pray for new confidence in you and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.